You know, there was a drama that was done entitled The Long Silence, and the following scene is kind of part of this short drama. At the end of time, billions of people are scattered on a great plain before the throne of God. Most of them are shrinking back from the brilliant light. But some groups near the front are talking heatedly, not with cringing shame, but with belligerence. Can God truly judge us, they say? How can he know anything about suffering? Snapped a pert young brunette as she ripped open a sleeve to reveal tattooed numbers from a Nazi concentration camp. We endured terror, beatings, torture, death. In another group, a Negro boy lowers his collar. What about this, he demanded, showing an ugly rope burn, lynched for no crime but being black. In another crowd, a pregnant schoolgirl with sullen eyes said, Why should I suffer? It wasn't my fault. And far out across the plain, hundreds of voices in such groups were being raised against God, each having a complaint for the evil and suffering that he permitted in his world. Some were thinking how lucky of God to live in heaven where all was sweetness and light, where there was no weeping, no fear, no hunger, no hatred. What did God know of all that man had been forced to endure in this world? For God himself had led a pretty sheltered life. So each of these groups sent forth their leader chosen because they had suffered the most, a Jew, a Negro, a person from Hiroshima, a horribly deformed arthritic. In the center of the plane, they consulted with each other. At last, they were ready to present their case. It was rather a clever case. Before God could be qualified to their understanding to be their judge, he must endure what they had endured. Their decision was that God should be sentenced to live on earth as a man. One group shouted, let him be born a Jew. Let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted, another cried out. Give him work so difficult that even his family will think him out of his mind when he tries to do it, said a different group. Let him be betrayed by his closest friends. Let him face false charges, be tried by a prejudiced jury, convicted by a cowardly judge, and then let him be tortured. At the last, let him see what it means to be alone, terribly alone, and then let him die. Let him die so there can be no doubt that he died, and may a great crowd of witnesses verify it. As each leader pronounced his portion of the sentence, large murmurs of approval went up from the throng of people assembled. And when the last had finished pronouncing sentence, there was a long silence. No one uttered another word. No one moved, for suddenly all knew that God had already served his sentence. What we discover in this sentence is that it does not originate in the mind of the dramatist. This story does not even originate in the mind of humanity, but rather from God himself. Today we're turning to John's gospel, probably to one of the most familiar passages of Scripture. Pastor Thomas did a great job last week in talking about the story of Jesus meeting Nicodemus. Chapters 3, verses 1 to 15. But he stopped at verse 16. And you know, it's interesting, in my edition anyways, it has red letters that goes all the way down to verse 21. But many scholars today are saying that probably the words from verse 16 down to 21 were actually words, not that Jesus spoke, but actually as a comment that the evangelist John is making about that encounter with Nicodemus. And so we look at probably one of the most powerful and most famous verses of all. It's found there in John 3.16. 
Many of us know it. Let's say it together. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. What a powerful text of Scripture. You know, we can see the motivation for why God died for us. But before we focus our thoughts on that, I thought I would briefly answer a question that maybe some of you have thought of or maybe some of you have never considered but the question is why did God have to die why doesn't God just forgive us you know that's a thought that some people have why does why do we need the cross and the answer simply put is that it would be unjust in other words where is the justice because you have to think of it this way the innocent dying for the guilty is not justice how many know that's true that God, when he becomes a man and he's sinless and he's innocent and he dies for the guilty, is that true justice? No, it's not. When someone sins, they actually violate someone else. Isn't that true? And there's a sense in our culture today, we, we, have, we have shifted so far away from any sense of, of the nature of sin and its havoc it wrecks in people's lives. It victimizes, abuses crushes, demoralizes, defaces, destroys people's lives. It's unjust for nothing to happen as the victim has suffered in some way. And so there is a cry for restitution. As a matter of fact, in the book of Revelation, we hear this cry from the altar, How long, O God, will our blood not be avenged by the wicked who have slain us simply because we have followed you? There's a cry for justice. And you know, in the human heart, there is a cry. You know, we can talk about, you know, forgiveness and all the rest of it, but when, we've been, when we have been violated, when we have been offended, when we have been treated as a victim, there's a sense that there should be some form of restitution. Our culture doesn't understand that today. Today, the victim suffers. Isn't that true? Well, we're very quick. You know, we say we let, you know, perpetrators off the hook. We're quick at talking about forgiveness but somebody is suffering let me just point out something in the middle ages a biblical scholar by the name of Anselm wrote a book entitled why God became man and he tried to answer the question why God had to die obviously we're talking about God in the flesh the Lord Jesus Christ in his teaching on the atonement that is the theological term it means to be at one with God to be reconciled to God. The atonement is how God deals with our sin, which deals specifically with Christ's death on the cross brought up, and how it brought about forgiveness of sin. So Amsom's focus is on the demand of justice that goes along with God's mercy and forgiveness. Theologian Philip Carey says it this way, he assumes the classical conception of justice as rendering each his due, that is, paying what one owes. The key concept Absalom introduces is satisfaction. Will I have satisfaction from what has been done to me? Which means paying what is owed to someone who has been harmed, offended, or dishonored. We don't always see justice today, do we? We don't. We don't see a lot of justice at times. He goes on to say this, although God cannot be harmed in himself. How many know that's true? We can't harm God. 
As a matter of fact, there's a theological term called impassibility. You cannot touch God. He's beyond our ability to harm him. But he can be dishonored by us. Because God is better than the whole world or an infinity of worlds, the debt incurred by sin or disobedience to God is infinite. Now let me give you a thought that is foreign to our way of thinking. Because we live in a culture that's primarily egalitarian. That means we all think of ourselves as equal. We think of every human being as equal. But you know what? For the majority of human history, that was not the way humanity thought. As a matter of fact, if you lived in the Middle Ages, you had this idea that there were different stations in life, different social classes. There would be people like peasants who were working in the fields. And then there would be noblemen. And then there would be the king above the noblemen. And then there was God himself. And there was a distinct sense of hierarchy in the majority of the world. And so if you sinned against a fellow peasant, that was, you know, bad, but it could be worse. But if you did the same thing against a nobleman, that actually that crime was perceived to be greater because you were violating someone who was in authority over you. And how many know that if you violated the king, you could actually lose your life, and it was considered a great crime? And so in their minds, to think that sinning against God was the ultimate crime because you were now sinning against the ultimate authority. And let me just specify to all of us that we have a very cavalier attitude towards sin. And what I mean by cavalier is a nonchalant attitude. It's no big deal. I'll just ask for forgiveness. We've lost a real sense of the horror of sinning because all sin is primarily against God. How do you know that, Pastor? Think of the Psalm 51. David had sinned by having Uriah murdered and taking his wife Bathsheba unto himself, so he committed two sins. Actually, he probably committed a lot more than the Ten Commandments as you're going through the thing that David did. But in Psalm 51, and he's repenting before God, he says, against you and you only have I sinned, O Lord. Had he not sinned against humanity? Yes, he had. But in light of what he had done, compared to whom he had done it against, his sin was primarily against God. And let me just say something. All sin is primarily against God. We have, we have t- too light of a viewpoint on the nature of sin. Sin will damn our soul. Sin will keep us from life. Sin will destroy the value and the quality of our life. But we don't think of it that way. We're walking around as a culture highly depressed, greatly stressed out. We don't think of it as, you know, maybe this is a spiritual thing. No, we see it strictly as a medical problem, an emotional issue, a psychological problem, but we rarely see it as a spiritual problem. And we rarely address the core fundamental issue in our being. And many times it's primarily our sin against Almighty God. In Absalom's account, he says, to leave the dead unpaid, he argues is not mercy but injustice. Injustice. If someone cannot make satisfaction for his offense, the only just alternative is punishment. In Absalom's account, God became human because this was the only way to make satisfaction for sin. Only humans owe the debt, so God becomes human to repay the debt. It's an interesting thought, isn't it? Then he goes on to write, as a human being, Christ owes the debt, but as God, he pays the debt. Rather than looking at Christ's death as an innocent person being unjustly punished, Absalom takes the view that Christ is merciful by paying the debt 
for our sins. It's a beautiful thought. Jesus died for us. Jesus took our sins. What an amazing thing. Jesus is the one who can forgive us of our sins. Jesus can deliver us from our sins. Jesus has the power to set us free from the addictions and bondages that sin fosters upon our soul. And we saw that displayed here today. That was visually demonstrated to us. And we need to grasp the power of a grace that is greater than our sin. Philip Carey, a theologian, says he assumes the... Uh, sorry, um, let me move on here. So we can see that what we believe about Jesus is critical. How many can see that? If you don't believe he's God, you have a faulty view of life. If you don't believe that he lived on earth and died on a cross and rose again from the dead, you have an incorrect understanding of who Jesus Christ is. And there's a lot of groups out there that have a misunderstanding of the nature of who Jesus is. Jesus is both God and man. We've seen why God had to die, but what motivated him to die? You know, it's because we're so lovable, right? Well, that's not what John and Paul tell us. As a matter of fact, it's not because of who we are or what we've done, but rather it's because of who he is and what he's done that you and I can be set free from our sin. Christ's gift of forgiveness is granted in spite of us. What motivates the heart of God comes from within himself. The Bible says God so loved. Wow. Now we get an understanding of what real love is. Our culture has literally destroyed this concept. Listen to what Paul writes in the book of Romans. He said, but God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, in our culture, we think, well, you know, I'll just tell someone I love them. Hey, anybody can say words. They're said all the time. Love is an action. Love must be demonstrated. And let me go on to say this. You're not even getting to the first steps of love until you finally put the other person ahead of you at your expense. Now you're getting closer to what love is. Love is staying and being married to the same person year after year after year. Love, I'm serious. And you're going, now what are you, what are you getting at, Pastor? When the people get cranky? When they're not so nice to you? Isn't that true? That's love. Love is a commitment, folks. You know, if I had my way, I'd rewrite most of what Hollywood considers love because it's junk. It's just pure garbage. It's not what love is. The other night, uh, last night, Patty and I watched a very moving movie. I don't usually recommend movies, but it was a movie called Unconditional. You can write this one down. It's worth seeing. It's a Christian movie. I was weeping. It was so moving. You say, why? Because in the story is a young black man who's, who is literally, uh, he's dying because his kidneys are shutting down. Unless he gets a transplant, he's not going to live. And in one scene, he's, he's been caring for the kids in the project, most of whom have no father. He's just a young guy. And as he's there, this little boy comes up to him, and he says to him, can I ask one more favor of you? He's on his, on his bed, right, and they're hoping he's going to make it. And he says, if I can do it, I will. And he says, would you be my dad? You know, there's just, you see, love, love is making a commitment that, 
literally cost you something. And I believe God reveals to us and demonstrates to us the very nature of love. It says he demonstrated this to us and while we had no thought of him, we were in rebellion, we were in defiance, we had no thought of him whatsoever, he knew our condition and knew we needed to be died for. And he did. He died for us. You know, an undeserving person, a thoughtless person, how many say, you know, I get really irritated when people are thoughtless? Come on, some of you. You've got to be honest. It, doesn't that annoy you? Hey, God loved us while we were thoughtless, irritating, full of ourselves, self-centered and selfish. And he died for us. That's love. Paul goes on to write to the Ephesians, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. John, uh, Thomas did a good job last week of reminding us that we have to be born again. And the reason why that was such a radical concept was because we're dead. And the question I always ask people when I share this with them is, what can a dead person do for themselves? And the answer is nothing. And Paul says, that's our condition before Almighty God. As for you, you were, past tense, he's writing to Christians, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. That's how people live today. They're walking in a condition called separation from God. They're in a state of dead. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting, the walking dead. You know, very, isn't it amazing that the society embraces this garbage? Why? That's their condition. There's an identity with it. We don't know. Why are people attracted to that? There's an identity to it. Following the ways of this world, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are what? Disobedient. They're doing their own thing. They're violating God's law. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. And like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. That's our state before we're Christians. We're in a state of condemnation. We're, we're in a state of judgment. We're, we're, we've turned our back on God. We're going to see that today very clearly. We, we're, doing, we're, we're not facing God. We're doing our own thing. And then it says, but, oh, I love the B-U-T's in the Bible. Notice I had to spell that. Not two T's, one T. How many times that we read in the scriptures, here's the condition of humanity, but this. Here's what we did, but God did this. Here's what we're like, but God's like this. It says, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, did what? Made us alive. We were dead, now we're alive. Wow. With Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you've been saved. It's by a gift you've been saved. That's what Paul is telling us. Here in our text from John's Gospel, we discover three elements regarding the nature of God's love to us. And I want to just point them out briefly this morning. The first is the extent of God's love. The most well-known passage. We've already quoted it. John 3.16. The idea there is not how much God loved, but how God loved. How did God love? Ultimate expression of love, He died on a cross. In other words, he died for us. In other words, he gave up himself for us. The ultimate expression of love is when we give up ourselves for another. When we put this other person ahead of ourselves. 
when we die to our desires, our longings, our wishes, and we say, I'm willing to do something for you. It's self-sacrificing, isn't it? God loved us so much that the entire Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were involved in the process. You know, I remember in theology class, it would go something like this, the Father planned it, the Son provided it, the Holy Spirit applies it. You know, we, we don't have any problems with, you know, the work of the Holy Spirit. What's His job? His job is He's alive right now. He's living within us. He's convicting of us of our sins. He's helping us, you know, have a heart. Do you know the fruit of the Spirit is love? It's, in other words, it's God's work within us that's fashioning Christ within our lives as we yield to the work of the Spirit. He's applying the salvation into our lives. But we know the Son provided it. The Son was willing to leave heaven's glory. You know, to limit himself. The theologian call it the kenosis, where God humbled himself and became a man. He limited himself to a body. Can you imagine? God in a body. God who was everywhere present at one time was now limited to a body. God who had all power and authority and all wisdom and all knowledge didn't know everything because it said he didn't know the day when he would return. He was limiting himself in some measure as he became a human being. And then he lived a sinless life. And then he willingly laid down his life for us. And then he conquered death from the grave and rose again. Boy, we have no problem with that. But then we think the Father planned it. Oh, that just seems like the easy part, right? The architect behind the plan of salvation is the Father. But we get a little bit of what the angst is in the Father's heart when we hear the story of Abraham taking his son up into the mountain, his one and only son, the son of promise. Actually, he had Isaac, but it was, it was his promised son. And Abraham had to sacrifice his son. And just before he did it, God stopped him. But the father was giving Abraham an insight into, you know, there had to be a provision for the son. There had to be a substitute for his son. And the substitute that day was an animal. But in essence, I believe that Abraham had a revelation of God's plan being willing to give up his son. And you know, if you're a loving parent, you know what, you'd rather die for the sake of your kids and let them go through that experience of death. You would be willing to give your life up for them. You know, there's a story told of a, of a man by the name of um, John Griffin. This was back in the Deep Depression, the 1930s, and he got a job as a controller at a great ro railroad bridge. It was a drawbridge across the Mississippi River. One day in the summer of 1937, he decided to take his son, Greg, he was eight years old at the time, to work with him. And at noon, John and Greg were up on the platform up near where the ships are now uh, passing by because, you know, John had opened up the bridge so the ships could pass through. And they were eating their lunch. And how many know that time flies when you're enjoying the person you're with? And they were having a wonderful time when all of a sudden, out of the revelry of his enjoyment of his son, he was startled by the shriek of a train whistle in the distance. He quickly looked at his watch and noticed it was 107, and the Memphis Express, with hundreds of passengers, was now roaring towards that bridge. He leaped from the observation deck and ran to the control tower so he could throw that master switch down. And before he did, he looked down to make sure there were no ships in the way. And when he did, there's something that caught his eyesight. You see, Greg had slipped and fallen down into the massive gears from the observation deck and his left leg was caught in the cogs between the two main gears 
desperately John's mind was whirling, trying to devise a way that he could rescue his son and rescue the, the people on the train. And everything he thought of, he knew time was his enemy, and he was no way he could do it, but as soon as he thought of a possibility, he knew it couldn't be done. And again, with alarming closeness, the train whistle shrieked. He could hear the clinking of the locomotive wheels over the tracks, and there was his son down there, and yet there were 400 passengers on the train. He knew what he had to do, and burying his head in his left arm, he pushed the master switch forward. That great massive bridge lowered into place just as the train whistled over. When John Griffin lifted his head with his face smeared with tears, he looked into the passing window of that train. There were businessmen reading their afternoon papers, finely dressed women in the dining car sipping coffee with children pushing long spoons of ice cream into their little faces. No one was looking at the control tower. No one was looking at the gearbox. With retching agony, John Griffin cried out at the big, the big steel train, I sacrificed my son for you. Don't you care? The train rushed by, but nobody heard the father's voice. Oh, that we would hear the father's voice this morning. Let us not be indifferent to what it really cost the father to give up his son. The second element we discover is not only the extent of God's love, but the effectiveness of his love. Jesus came not to condemn, it says, but to save. We need to realize that every human being is under the condemnation of sin. John 3.17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. The key to experiencing salvation rather than condemnation is to embrace the Son is to receive this gift of love. It goes on to say in verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. You know, it's interesting. God made a way for humanity to be delivered. And if you and I spurn God's provision, there is no other provision. This is it, folks. This is our only hope. When someone refuses to accept God's sacrificial gift, they not only remain under condemnation, it's an even greater condemnation because they have rejected God's love. And I think while our society, for the most part, either ignores God entirely or else blames God for what is going on in our world. Isn't that true? People are always angry. You know, if God is such a loving God, why does God allow evil in this world? Have you ever heard that statement? Stories told of an atheist barber who happened to be talking to a minister, and they were kind of traveling through a slum of a large city, and the barber kind of was pointing out to the people there, and he could see a lot of them were struggling with life. And he said to the minister, if there's a loving God, how can he permit all of this poverty, this suffering, and the violence among these people? Why doesn't he save these people from all of this? Just then, the minister noticed a disheveled man crossing the street. He was unshaved, filthy, long, scraggly hair hanging down his neck. The minister pointed him out to the barber and he said, well, you claim to be such a great barber. Why do you allow that man to be unkept and unshaven? Why, why the barber stuttered, he never gave me a chance to shave him up and cut his hair. Exactly, said the minister. Men are what they are because they reject God's help. F.F. Bruce says, the man who depreciates Christ or thinks him unworthy of his allegiance passes judgment on himself, not on Christ. He does not need to wait until the day of judgment. The verdict on him 
has been pronounced already. There will indeed be a final day of judgment, but that day will serve only to confirm the judgment that has already been passed. People are under condemnation. You see, sin condemns us. It points to us. It condemns us. We can, we can try to deflect it. We can blame others. We can say we've just been victims. But you know what? We all have to take ownership. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. When people come to Christ, they move from living in condemnation to a freedom known only to the forgiven. We are delivered from all that sin brings into our world. Do you realize that ultimately we'll experience the totality of our salvation? Freedom from sickness, from sorrow, from tears, from death and dying, from alienation and loss, from misunderstanding, from insecurities. I can go, I can go down a list of all that sin brings into our world. You know, the Apostle Peter describes the Christian life this way. He says that though there are trials for a season that come to refine our faith and purify us, he goes on to say this in 1 Peter, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Now, I don't know about you, isn't that an awesome expression? Do you know what it is to walk in peace? when so many people walk in torment? Do you know what it is to walk in joy in midst even a trial when so many people are walking in despair and without any measure of hope in their situation? But you and I can transcend that. Why? Because we have a Savior who cares about us. Listen to what Peter goes on to say, casting all our cares on Him. Why? Because He cares for us. To know that God is in control, to believe it and to live in the, in the security of that fact that God loves me. God loves you. God cares about us and is watching over our lives. He says, for you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls, to know the freedom of sins forgiven, the joy of walking with God. What an amazing life. Do you know, being a Christian means that we have a compelling purpose. We have meaning for life. We have significance a lot of people, you know, they're just living for themselves. It's pretty empty. It's pretty small. But we have a compelling purpose that extends beyond ourselves and actually frees us from our fallen, sinful self. What a great thought that is. But let me move on to the last element regarding God's nature of love. Not only does it deal with the extent, the effectiveness, but also the evidence of it. How do we know we're experiencing God's love in our lives? I'm glad you asked that question. It's basically by the direction of our lives. I think we're only moving in one of two directions in life. We're either moving away from God or we're moving towards God. There's only two directions. And he brings this up. When we move away from God, it reflects a wrong heart attitude. Look at verse 19. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. He's using a metaphor of light and darkness. He says, light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light. And then he tells us why. Why is it that people are choosing to turn their back on God and to embrace the darkness? The Bible says here, what? Their deeds are evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light. You know, some of us are shocked. Hey, I'm just trying to do the right thing. I'm just trying to do a good thing. Why is there opposition to doing the good and the right thing? Listen, everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Do you know sin is an absence of love? 
God, as John tells us in his letter, is love. We cannot be filled with God and live in continuous sin. Do you realize that? Listen to what John says. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. This is how you're supposed to live. We're relying on God's love. God's love comes into our heart. How? It is shed abroad in our hearts. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. We're relying on God's love, it says. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God lives in him. And then he goes on, in this way, love is made complete among us so that we have confidence on the day of judgment. Because in this world, we are what? We're like him. And folks, if we're moving towards God, what does that say to us? It says that we become more and more like him. And you and I should be actually being transformed as we're walking towards God. He should be changing us. There should be a transformation happening in our life. We should be growing in our faith. We should be becoming more compassionate, more understanding, more patient, more kind, more loving, more forgiving, more generous, more gracious. Amen? We should be moving in that direction. And then he goes on to say, but there's no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. And the one who fears is not made perfect in love. You know, sin invariably leads the sinner to hide himself from God. We know that that's true. Look at the first parents in the garden. What happens is they sinned against God and the first thing they realized that they were naked, they were ashamed. They covered themselves with fig leaves and they hid from God. They ran from God. Here we see in our text that when we do evil, it's a reflection of our attitude towards God. We're not loving God. Rather, we're placing ourselves in place of God. You know, that's really the essence of sin. It's dethroning God from his rightful place in our lives. And it's putting ourselves on that tr- throne. The only problem is that we lack the wisdom to truly govern our lives aright. We don't have that kind of wisdom. We're not as wise as God. He knows what's best. We think we know, but what we want and we decide, that's best. But then it's not God's will, we suffer. When it's not God's will, we suffer. And so do others because of our sin. Do we realize that? The pain of it. That's why the scriptures call us to deny ourselves. The real test of love is not what we say to each other, but it's demonstrated by our willing to deny ourselves for the sake of others, putting them ahead of ourselves. And that's exactly what Jesus was saying to us. And he says in Mark chapter 8, then he called the crowds to him along with his disciples and said, if anyone would come after me, and I think that's one way of loving God, we're coming after him. He must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for me in the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his own soul? Can I just say something? When you and I have the wrong goals in life and we go chasing after those things, what we have bought into is a lie, and a lie is nothing but an idol, and it's a false way of worship, and we go after this thing that's promising us all these good things, and when we get there, we realize it's empty. It's a chasing after the wind. It's vanity. It's emptiness and meaninglessness. And we're empty because we become that which we chase after. And if we're chasing after God, we become like him. But thou, O man of God, flee these things. Thou, O man of God, pursue these things. And we're told what to chase after. And really, ultimately, we're to chase after God. It says here, What can a man give in exchange for his soul? 
And if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, can I just say something? Don't worry about what the world thinks. We're so hung up. We're so concerned about what people think. They, this is an adulterous and sinful generation. We should be more concerned about what God thinks. We should be more concerned about what God says and thinks, and we should be courageous and say, this is where I'm at. It's the truth. This is true beauty. This is true life. But if we are ashamed of his words, it says the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with his holy angels. We're not living for this world. We're living for one greater than ourselves. Jesus is spelling it out, isn't he? Yet in a different text, Jesus tells us to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. So what does that mean? In other words, how is it possible to value ourselves and deny ourselves simultaneously? You ever wondered that? Great question. John Stott, in his amazing book, says this. It's on, the book is entitled The Cross of Christ. He says, what we are, our self or personal identity, is partially the result of the creation. In other words, every human being is made in the image of God. And partly we're the result of the fall. In other words, that image has been defaced as a result of sin. And what happens when we sin is we're de defacing the image of God in our lives. The self we are to deny, disown, and crucify is our fallen self. And then he defines what the fallen self is. It's everything within us that is incompatible with Jesus Christ. Hence his command, let him deny himself and then let him follow me. That's, in other words, what, what we're being taught is simply this, that we're to deny everything that is unlike Christ inside of us. Everything that is opposed to his will. That is the fallen self within us. Then he goes on, the self we are to affirm and value is our created self. Everything within us that is compatible with Jesus Christ. Hence a statement that if we lose ourselves by self-denial, we shall find ourselves. In other words, true self-denial, the denial of our false self, is not, is not the road to self-destruction, but the road to self-discovery. Now we're living in a culture that says, you've got to find yourself. I'm telling you, this is the secret. You want to find yourself? You've got to deny the false self and embrace the self that God has made us in the image of God. You and I have to turn our face away from, turn our, our back away, in, in a sense, if, we're, if our back's turned away from God, we need to turn back to God and pursue in this direction, towards God. When we move towards God, it's because of what God has done within us. Verse 21 says, but whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be plainly seen what he has done has been done through God. That which we love, we run to. Now, how many know if you're a parent and your child goes to school and they get an A on their report card or they do something really significant, they don't just, you know, walk into the house and not say anything. They come running into the house all excited to say, Mom, Dad, look what I did, right? Because they don't mind having that exposed. But if they got you know, they got failure in all of their grades on their report card. They may not even tell you it's been report card day. You may not even find the report card. Do you know what I'm saying? 
You can see the human nature in all of this. Why am I bringing this out? Because this has been really reinforced to me that we love what we run to. Or we run to what we love. You know, I have the privilege of having a little granddaughter. Some of you have met her. And I don't know why she's decided to like me the way she does. You know, I don't know if it's because I love her, but everybody loves her, so it can't just be that. I don't know. She's made a decision. And so when she sees me, she starts vibrating. It's great. You know, you know I'm, I'm, she's, she's given me the name. I didn't even tell her who I am. I'm now Poppy. I, that's, that's what she calls me, Poppy. So now she sees me, and the first thing she goes, Poppy! And she starts, you know, she gets all excited, and then she runs to me. And I go, wow. Now, what do you think on my end that makes me feel like? I'm just going, wow, this is awesome. I'm being loved with no, you know, just pure love. And God says, that's the way I want you to love me. I want you to get so excited when you see me. I want you to vibrate. I want you to run to me. I want you to run towards me. But I have something even greater than that to tell you this morning. And I'm going to close with this parable. And it's very familiar to us. It's the story of a father who had two sons. And the youngest son came to his dad one day, and he said, you know, I just want my inheritance, and I want out of the house. I can't stand it here any longer. And the father gave him his inheritance, and he went off, and he squandered it and just made a mess of his life and lost everything his dad had given him. The father, heartbroken, in the wings, waiting, hoping, looking. The son finally, he's coming to the end of himself. He's got no more money. He's, you know, very unemployable, but he finally gets a job. We know the story. He's working in a pig farmer's, and he's feeding the pigs, and he's lusting after the pig's food. That's how hungry he's become. And he said, you know, even my servants in my father's house are treated better than this. And even though I know I've disqualified myself as a son, I'm just going to go back to my father's house and say, just hire me as your servant. But you know what the beauty of the story is? The father was waiting. The father was watching. The father was hoping. And when he saw his son come from a great distance off, the father ran to the son. I want you to know, folks, God runs to us. God runs to us. It's a beautiful thought. But most people just turn their back on him. And that's what we do when we sin against God. We're turning our back to God. You see, I think we've got a really sad attitude. We don't realize how grievous our sin really is. And I'm just praying today. I just said to the guys, I said we were going to pray for the service. I said, let's just pray. Number one, we get a deep lesson. Let's not take sin lightly. Because it's a violation of love. And you and I know that when we sin against a person who deeply loves us, and we hurt them deeply, there's nothing worse than that. Can we say amen to that? And that's what we do to God when we sin. I really believe if we allow the love of God to capture our hearts, if we knew how much God loved us, if we could see the picture of a running father towards us, I think we could be like Joseph in the courts of Egypt when Potiphar's wife comes to him and says, sleep with me. And Joseph says to her, listen, your, your, my master has given me total freedom to do anything in this house, but you're his wife. And he says, how can I do this great sin against God? 
because Joseph was a person who was running towards God. And I really believe if you and I are running towards God, it'll keep us from a lot of sin. It'll make us say, you know what, I can't do this thing because it's the wrong thing to do. It'll grieve the heart of God. It'll violate me and it'll hurt other people. I want to run to God. Let's stand this morning. We're going to put our track shoes on this morning. Because I want to believe with you that all of us will become great runners. But we'll not be running from God. We'll be running to God. I want to live a life where I'm running a race, but I'm running to Him. Isn't that great? Because you know there's a day coming where we're going to just run right into His arms. Hallelujah. That's an awesome thought. If you're running in the right direction, one day you will run right into His arms. With every head bowed this morning, how many here can say, Pastor, I want to keep running in that direction? Just raise your hand. You just say, I want to run this race. I want to run right into His arms. I want, to, I, want to ex- I want to just experience His love anew and afresh in my life. Maybe you're here today. Just thank you so much. Put your arms down. How many here today say, you know, Pastor, I can honestly say today, the Spirit of God's been talking to me. God has been in the house. He's been speaking into my soul. I realize I've been running from God. But today, I want to turn around, and I want to run to God. If that's you today, just raise your hand. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not a Christian this morning, because the, the, the essence of life is simply, which direction are you running in? And I'm just, I'm just asking you, the Father is telling you, listen, if you will turn right now, it's turn towards me and start running to me, I can guarantee you, I've already started running towards you. And I'm going to throw my arms around you, And I'm going to embrace you with my arms of love. You're not going to be condemned. But if you refuse to do that, I'm warning you today, you're living in condemnation. It's not something I'm telling you. I'm not pronouncing it. I'm just declaring that that's your condition. You're under condemnation. And God wants to deliver you from condemnation. Jesus did not come into the world to condemn it. He came into the world to save it. And all you and I need to do is turn our back on the world. Turn our back on our sinful, evil desires and say, God, help me. I need you. And he'll hear that cry. And I'll tell you something. I can make this guarantee. I've been running a long time with him. And it gets better. And it gets more glorious. And it's the most exciting life that you will ever live. You know, you can't understand that when you live a short period of time, but the longer you live, the more you appreciate and value the life of Christ. And I can honestly say to you, with absolute total sincerity, I am so thankful that one day God called me, and I heard His voice, and I turned my back, and I turned my face towards God, and I've been running in that direction. What a glorious race this has been. It's not always been easy. I won't, I won't fool you that way. It's not always been easy but it's been the best life. It's a joy-filled life. It's a peace-filled life. And so, Lord, I pray for those who are turning their backs on sin. They're saying no to sin, Satan. They're saying no to their false self, and they're saying yes to their true created self, the one that's been made in your image, Lord. They want to have that image restored and renewed in their life. I pray today forgiveness would come, and, Lord, we would start running together, encouraging each other as we run this race together. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, before you leave, just let me say this. 
If you raised your hand and said, I'm turning my back on sin, I want to run with God. You've never done that before. There's a card in our pew that says, welcome to our church. Fill that card out. Make sure you say, I made a commitment to Christ today. Give me the card when you leave. I will have someone contact you to help you run that race well. All right? God bless you as you leave this morning.